Hello, and welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers when Simon Bates unveiled the all-new Radio 1 Golden Hour in January 1992, which seemed to involve playing one or two album tracks. But what was the year? I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that he remembers, and no one's ever seemed to, is writer Justin Lewis. Justin! What are you up to? Where can we find it? Well, last time I did this, I mentioned that I was doing the When Is Births birthday cards, and that's now spun off into a new project called When Was Things, which are images based on the events and pop culture premieres of a month in history. So those currently go up every Monday and Friday on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram on the When Is Births account. That's When Is Births, one word, and you can contact me and order personalised commissions should you wish. If you email When Is Births, all one word, at Yahoo. OK, well, when you finally get round to doing September 1981, I'm wondering if you're going to have this music whirling round in your head. but you probably don't recognise that music and when you find out what it is you might well fall through the bar in surprise. Justin, <laughs> what was happening there? I first heard this, I think it was Easter Sunday in 1987 probably when BBC One was doing a night of BAFTA winning repeats when John Sullivan had recently won, I think it was a special award so they re-ran the very first Only Fools and Horses episode from September 1981 and I had never seen the first series at all. By 87, you know, Fools and Horses obviously was just massive, everyone watched it. And the opening titles look the same, but by Jiminy, they didn't sound the same. You can almost, almost sing the title of Only Fools and Horses to that Ronnie Hazelhurst tune. It is a misjudgment completely, isn't it? But I can sort of hear why it was given that theme tune in a strange colour, because sitcom themes did still sound like that in 1981. But it doesn't really tell you anything about the show. It's just funny music. It's funny. Look, funny saxophones. It's like the on the buses music. Whereas they brought in... Well, they were going to get Chaz and Dave, weren't they? And then John Sullivan did his own much lower key theme music with lyrics that really sort of evoke London and the place and all of that kind of thing. Whereas I suppose the original music has got that piano and it's sort of become, you know, that became well known. I mean, it's become well known that it took off when that second series got a repeat. But you could, I think, make a serious claim that changing the theme tune probably saved the show, I think. Oh, absolutely. Because I mean, my background with this is I remember those original broadcasts with it on. I remember being surprised right. when they put the second theme on, because yeah. it's a really really odd story attached to this, is that that was only on the first series and the first Christmas special, which is kind of sort of swept under the carpet now, because their dad appears in it. Oh yeah, that's right. That kind of messes with the continuity a bit, mm. but I remember, because about two people watched Only Fools and Horses during the very first series, <laughs> it's not an exaggeration, John Sullivan was always surprised it made it to a second series, but I remember because I was the only person in our family who wanted to watch the Christmas special. I had right. to watch it on the black and white portable. Years and years later when the very, very last Only Fools and Horses ever was on, I was the only one who didn't want to watch it and I watched something else, I can't even remember what, on that same black and white portable. It's like a really neat full circle. And I was actually just to change the subject for a second, trying to speculate on how I came to dislike Only Fools and Horses so much or, or lose interest rather. I can't say mm. dislike but I was mad on it at first and I just mm. got 
really, really fed up a bit over the years. And the only explanation I can come up with, really, is that kind of when it got big, it annoyed me that people latched onto the wrong bits and misquoted it and <laughs> laughed yeah. at things where you thought that's not one of the jokes. The only thing I can liken it to is it always really got right up my nose when, when One Foot in the Grave really took off. Demonstrably, when you watch it, Victor Meldrew says, I don't believe it in a very clipped way, you know, I don't believe it, or quite often it's I don't bloody believe it, which interferes yeah. with people quoting it. But yeah. everyone went round saying, I don't believe it, like that, and that really yeah. annoyed me. I think Only Fools and Horses was a bit like that. That's why I always loved it, when they would broadcast one with the original theme on, because it must yes. have really annoyed people. But I think with Fools and Horses, I mean, I don't know how you feel about this, but I think everyone secretly has a kind of a moment where they wish Fools and Horses had stopped at point X. Because obviously it nearly stopped with the Who Wants a Millionaire thing where Dell nearly goes to Australia and they were nearly going to finish it there. And I remember thinking when Rodney and Cassandra got married that that was the end of it. I just suddenly thought, no, you've done it. And then obviously a couple of years on you think, yeah, well, okay, so they're having a baby now. Yeah, okay, that'll be the end. And then obviously when they became millionaires, Rodgers, I thought, well, okay, fine, that'll do now. Brilliant. You know, you've gone off on a high, you know, 28 million, million people watching or whatever it was but no <laughs> they still, they get, and then the green green grass which no one wants that <laughs> the trouble is people don't realize they've had enough of something sometimes you know we can all point to things that just went on a bit long the interesting thing about this theme music is it's something that fascinates me things that were different about shows when they first started and when yes. you watch those opening titles they are cut in time to the original theme that's exactly gone and off right. goes yes. exactly with it and yeah. weirdly, I think it works that it doesn't correspond with the John Sullivan theme. Right. Kind of you're paying more attention to what's happening on the screen. Yeah. And maybe that helped its chance of success. I don't actually know. But you do get things like, do you remember the original Yes Minister opening titles? Oh, remind me. Rather than the Gerald Scarf cartoon it had the front page of a newspaper where it kind of panned across and there were photographs of them as part of a story oh, on the front yes. page. Do you know what was the opening theme for Happy Days when it started? It was Rock Around the Clock, wasn't it? it Which I it think was. was replaced for later repeats, wasn't it? With yeah. the proper Happy Days theme. Well, I mean, I assumed that presumably it was one of those things that if they were ever going to put it on video or DVD, it would have been absolutely insanely expensive to actually clear that. But maybe, I don't know, maybe the rules are different in America. Do you know what the original music for the Catherine Tate show was the first series I mean they, they had its own theme after series one but the first series was In These Shoes by Kirsty McCall and also of course there's uh, I mean there's Peep Show famously with Flagpole Sitter which of course was covered before Peep Show did it by Weird Al Yankovic <laughs> This is a polka medley he did. I'm just going to ask, though, do you remember something that had a weird kind of midpoint between the two Only Fools and Horses themes? Do you remember Only Jerks and Horses by Lucas and Williams, which I think was originally for... Was it for Paramount Comedy, where it had a dreadful saxophone version of the Only Fools and Horses theme? Did Channel 4 do an, Ameri do an American TV night? Or oh, no, I know what they did. Sitcom night, that's it. And they did things like There's a puppet Lives in My House. Didn't they do a British version of... Seinfeld? I'm blonde, yet my friends are crazy with a K. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I loved Only Jerks and Horses. It was such an imaginative... Because for anyone who's not seen it, it was basically <laughs> what would happen if they remade Only Fools and Horses in America, retaining Nicholas Lindhurst as Rodney. <laughs> 
And also, they just started showing it in America at that point. Had they? Yeah, PBS started showing it in about 95, 96, I think. So, yeah, it was there. I was going to say that I didn't see how it could ever really catch on in America, but I've just remembered, who is the most prolific interactor with Ice-T on Twitter? It's oh, John Chalice, it's, um, John Chalice, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, that's right. God, that's right. It didn't occur to me that Ice-T might have seen Only Fools and Horses, but it's, it's quite possible, isn't it? <laughs> That's very possible. Okay, well, harking back slightly, in an absolutely terrible link to the Only Jerks and Horses theme, which was technically Anglo-American, here's a record called Anglo-American, which we'll talk about in a second. I was a very big fan of, still am, of St. Etienne when I was at university. And I think I'm right in saying, isn't it, that the woman who's on the cover of Fox Base Alpha, the first album, was in the group Golden, have I got that right? Yes, Selena Nash, yeah. Along with Lucy Gilly, who appears in a couple of the early St. Etienne videos. Oh, right, I didn't know that. Because what interested me about, and I mean, I suspect I might talk about this again a bit later in, in a different form, but I've always been interested in, with pop music, not just the record, but I like the whole package of something. So, you know, I like what the sleeve art looks like. I like the video. You know, there's something about the group who've got their own personality and are allowed to stamp their own identity on whatever they do. I think all my favourite artists have done that. And St. Etienne, one of the things they did quite quickly was they decided to form their own record label called Ice Rink. And Ice Rink, I don't think it lasted very long, but the biggest act it discovered was Shampoo, right? Did they just do yes. that on Ice Rink? Yeah. And Earl Brutus as well, who was slightly oh, less God, big. But yeah, did. they did That's start right. on there, yeah. And I thought golden were going to make it actually i remember hearing this and it was one of those things where they definitely did used to do records like this in the early 90s where the vocals were quite murky at times you couldn't always hear what they were singing which is saint etienne's own records were a bit like that at the time but there's sort of you i didn't have a clue what sarah Cratton was singing on half the records still don't actually on a few of them golden was a bit in that spirit but the main thing i remember about it apart from how nice it was to hear it again because i hadn't heard it for ages i don't think it's ever come out on cd i think the b-side did the b-side was called don't destroy me came out on an ice rink compilation but anglo-american did not it's one of those i'm very bad at picking hits but i remember thinking oh yeah that's a hit got nowhere i remember being disappointed that it didn't go on to anything else but then they often say that you know you put one single out and 
maybe you've done it. You don't have to make 20 albums. Well, yeah, I was surprised to find you are right. It's never been on CD because, like you, I was a big fan of Saint Etienne for the off. I mean, you know, anyone who knows the fact that I've written a whole book about that first album will know that. But <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. it was quite exciting that they did seem to be trying to build this world around them because there's already been the Cola Boy record, Seven Ways to Look, oh, which is yes, essentially right, them in disguise. Yeah. And then, like you say, Ice Rink appeared, and another act who was on this was Supermarket, which was actually oh, Lawrence God. from Denim in disguise. Oh, there's a lot wow. of disguise going on here, doing a sort of spoof supermarket music record. But all these Ice Rink records didn't really do anything. And I remember hearing them a lot on Radio 1, and the featured in Smash Hits quite a lot. And maybe it was just too early in their career, because I think people barely even knew what they looked like at that point. No, that's... Have you ever heard they did Fox Space Beta, which is kind of a yeah. rebuild yeah. of Fox Space Alpha with all the original elements mixed in a different way? Have you ever heard the interview that. disc that comes with it? Yes, I have, yes. And yes. Forgive me, I can't remember who the interviewer is, but they do point out and say, at that point, to the general public, there's little to differentiate you from, say, the 49ers or somebody. And I think that's a very valid point. Wasn't the interview Richard X who remixed it? Yes, it was, yes. Yeah. yeah that's right, yeah. That's right. Talks to Bob Stanley and... Pete Wiggs, yeah. yeah. I love Fox Space Beater, actually. I think it's a brilliant remix album. I don't think most people knew who they were till You're in a Bad Way, probably, which got them on top of the pot, which I don't think they'd done before. But, you know, I often think that... Occasionally I hear... It's usually only Love Can Break Your Heart you hear on Oldies Radio, and you think... Yeah, I almost can see now why it wasn't a massive hit, whereas back in the day you would have thought, oh, yeah, now that's a big hit, surely. It does sound like an indie record in the end. You hear that one sometimes, you think, God, that really does sound quite lo-fi. And I'm not saying that as a criticism. I love the sound of the record. But sometimes you can sort of hear... You sort of think, yeah, actually, I, I can quite see why some people wouldn't have gone for that. Why it didn't quite break through in the way that people thought it would. It hasn't got that sort of... You might be able to hear that on evening radio, but I couldn't imagine, you know, it being played at breakfast time or something like that. Yeah, and Radio 1 hasn't quite shifted position by then, so I could never imagine, say, Simon Bates playing it. But you are right, it was all over the evening session. And, well, actually, John mm. Peel never really liked St. Etienne, did he, for some reason? No, no. It's one I mean, of those you know... weird twists he got in like with the Stone Roses like with the Divine Comedy where he would champion lots of acts that were like them but less good like almost as if he was proving a point you know like kind of oh I don't like them because they're the polished good version of that sound I think we've all got that a bit because I know that there are bands indeed there are whole things that in theory I would love and I don't understand why I don't sometimes it, the thing with Peel which I think Walters used to say this didn't he was that you know Peel would suddenly just go look I can't explain it but that I like that and he almost couldn't articulate it sometimes yeah it's funny what Peel didn't like but then I equally find it weird what he did like sometimes didn't he say he didn't particularly care for Blur until they played at his house and he got on famously with them then I think I seem to remember he had played a couple of things off the Blur album and had enthused about it, and then invited right. him to play at PLA, because the story has become, suddenly they said, can we play at your house? And he said, oh, I like you now. But it's still quite contrary that he was disdainful about them until then, when, you know, you could understand him not going for park life or something, but this is a low, and half the stuff on modern life is rubbish. We're pretty mm. out there, I think. He probably just listened to other things. There's a lot made about how, oh, he listened to everything, but he can't have done. And he was working at other things, so I think you are going to 
make choices, like it or not, if you're faced with a pile of records, you're going to go for the name of a group or going back to what I said, you know, you might look at the sleeve, think, oh, that looks interesting. Or, you know, something else might set you off. And then you'll go, oh, it's a new Fall album. Brilliant. You know, so we're all going to be like that a bit. I mean, well, just to take it back to St. Etienne for a second, I think they've got that expanded universe thing in inverted commas sort of sorted brilliantly now, particularly with all the brilliant compilations they do, like English Weather, Three Day Week and so on. But there's a part of me that does miss that early phase which just they were almost throwing things at the wall not to see what stuck commercially but just to see what interested them and the ice rink label is a great example of that because you know we've mentioned golden shampoo denim under a pseudonym and earl brutus and four more different acts you couldn't really think of yeah and yet they kind of gave them a sense of unity almost shared purpose on this short-lived label and it's just fascinating to see that not quite happen but it was almost like it was taking shape but i think it certainly at that stage i think it's become different since i might have to apologize to pete wiggs for saying this because it might this might not be true i didn't really think of them as musicians in the accepted sense in a weird sort of way not being musicians meant that they could play at what they wanted to sound like and if they wanted to make a folk record and get people in like the Dibby Tiger Bay or whatever or they could make a stomping dance record or they could make a mood instrumental piece for the b-side or something there was actually nothing stopping them I think I think could stop them you might yeah. say <laughs> you got that just well, just before moving on, I mean, you mentioned Tiger Bay. I just wanted to say yeah. that that's my, after Fox Base Alpha, that's my second favourite St. Etienne album, just very mm. narrowly edged out by Fox Base Alpha. You've just reminded me that late last year, I went to see the Tiger Bay played in full tour. It was absolutely fantastic. And right that. at the moment, we're both stuck in our houses. And I'm just really looking forward to the day where they can go to something like that again. And please, please, please tour that again, because I want to go see that again. Yeah, no, that was that was ace to have an orchestra do it as well. It was fantastic. Okay, well, moving on to your next choice now, which is a series of publications that, had it continued into the early 90s, I'm, I'm not convinced it would have covered even Saint Etienne, let alone Golden, but we'll let you explain that. Rock and roll in every song. Rock and roll in every Okay, that's Rock and Roll by Status Quo, with a chorus that amuses me on two counts. First of all, suggesting roll has an existence independent of rock, but secondly, the line, it's rock and roll and rock and rock and roll. Now, what is this additional rock in rock and roll and rock? Justin, was this explained in the Rock Yearbook? Not really, no. Um, (laughs) And to be honest, I don't know. Before I start on this, I don't know if books that are about pop music should be called rock. I have a a big problem with this. Because it's the pop yearbook. That's all that matters. It's all pop. You know, unless it's classical, it's all pop. The Rock Yearbook, which was published by Virgin Books, and which came out annually between 1980 and 1988. And there were nine volumes in all, and I never bought the first one, but I have all the others, still have them. The Rock Yearbook, 1983, the third book, I can categorically confirm, was uh, a Christmas present for my beloved grandmother. I don't think it was her choice. I'm sure I just put it on a note and said, please, could you buy me this? This is confirmed because she has written Merry Christmas Love from Gran on the inside page. I was 12. It is full of swearing, not from my <laughs> Gran. 
<laughs> it's just got more swearing in it than almost anything I own. I mean, this marked a period when I became a real pop obsessive. I think we've probably already established through this conversation that this became a thing. A real pop obsessive, not just with all the facts and figures, but, you know, the whole range of music started to interest me. And this is a bit like a reference book. It's got, you know, all the year's top 20 singles and albums charts week by week in Britain and America. It's got useful addresses from record companies, but then it's also got feature articles, profiles of the year's top acts. So St. Etienne might have made it in the 90s. Roundups of all the various genres, extracts from album reviews, quotes of the year and even the best and worst record sleeves of the year. So it was just this absolute wodge of material and fact and opinion and sometimes humour. And I'm absolutely sure that that was a big influence, really, on when I started writing or indeed started thinking about creativity. It was probably that and Clive James, probably. And what amuses me now when I look back at them is how seriously I took pop music at the time. I used to pour over these things for hours. I find myself wondering who these books were aimed at, really, because it clearly wasn't supposed to be 12 12-year-old boys in Swansea. It was probably meant to be blokes of about 30. People who'd stopped buying the weekly music press but still be guided as to roughly what was going on. And, you know, and some of it inevitably is very pompous and some of the stuff that would be a bit embarrassing. But happily, some of it's brilliant. Loads of contributors, some of the obvious names, mostly male, I have to say. But there's, you know, David Hepworth, John Savage, Julie Birchall, Charlie Gillett, Mark Ellen, Charles Shaw Murray. And then there's some more surprising contributors like Mary Harron, uh, film director now. And there's a profile of Phil Collins in one of the books. And it was written, the profile is written by who else but Lloyd Grossman. What? Yeah. It, well, he was he was in a band, wasn't he? And he was a style journalist. I mean, quite how that leads to Phil Collins, I don't know. He was in a sort of punk rock group when he started. He was a style journalist. He wrote for Harper's and Queen or something like that when he was doing the early through the keyholes. That's how he got started, basically. There's also a review of the year in dance music. I think this is from back nineteen eighty seven. And that was compiled by none other than Mark Moore pre-S Express. This is like a whole year before he became a pop star. And inevitably, there's the two-page piece on Sir William Idol submitted by Neil Tennant, who was assistant editor at Smash Hits at the time. And I even spotted, in the course of going through these, a review of Neil Gaiman's Duran Duran biography, which was the first thing he ever put out. And judging by this write-up in the Rock Yearbook, it wasn't proofread very well, if at all. Obviously, much of the funny stuff, as you'd expect, comes from Tom Hibbert. I was amused to see his very first mention in the book. He's in a book's round up for 1982 and it features this slim biography on Whitesnake for omnibus press of all people and then he later becomes the editor of the book the rock yearbook and writes this superb piece about tabloid pop journalism and he writes book reviews every year for the for this book which are an absolute hoot although sadly he doesn't review his own Whitesnake biography but I must read you his contributor bio which appears more or less unchanged for a few years every year they have the list of contributors and they all have to write what they're doing this is what Tom Hibbert wrote for his Tom Hibbert of smash hits Q and other fine in inverted commas titles is an English person with a pathetic devotion to Jack Palance the bloke in man in a suitcase and other poor actors his wife is far more impressive having once kissed Elvis Presley on the lips and having been born just around the corner from Eric Brown of Iron Butterfly brackets eat toast those brackets I miss Tom Hibbert. Did you ever have? I still have a book by him called Rare Records. Which oh, he yeah, obviously being commissioned yeah. to, you know, do a book. You know, a kind of scholarly, yeah. respectful rock book about Rare Records. He just talks about how much he hates all these incredibly valuable records he's got. In particular, <laughs> I uh, reserved a vanilla fudge. <laughs> Late 60s American rock band who he appears to despise. You know, he's, he's ended up with all these, like, you know, really rare garage punk singles that he thinks are dreadful. 
dreadful mispressed Beatles things. <laughs> I wanted to talk about, there's this section called the best and worst album sleeves, which is actually one of the best things looking back at them. It's amazing because they get it right with almost everything. The best category tends to understand things like space and colour. And this was a point where, I mean, people used to call these things pretentious in the 80s, but there's actually something amazingly beautiful of some, about some of the sleeve art that came out. The worst are just absolute terrible lapses of taste in nearly every case. I mean, there's a very bad Kinks album sleeve called State of Confusion, which was the album oh, yes. with uh, Come Dancing on it. And it consists of the group having just scrawled State of Confusion on a wall in white paint, about to make a run for it. And that's it. And <laughs> and they have, a, they have a little caption because they have a little review at the bottom of the page to tell you, like, in brief, what they thought or why they've chosen it. <laughs> what they've written for this one is terribly uninteresting in every respect. <laughs> <laughs> which is true i mean regardless of what the contents are it comes back to me again you know that idea of i liked an interesting record sleeve you could look at it while you were listening to the record you know there was something about that and maybe and this only came to me the other day that the art cards i do now the when was things ones in particular they're almost i feel like they're, they're a belated attempt to realize that dream of you know oh wouldn't it have been great to be in a group and make a record the cover of which looked like that or something that you know you could yeah there's something about that the look of the group the image they have all that kind of thing yeah i do think there's a very strong pull for that and i was never really a mu- i was a bit of a musician as a teenager but not really anybody who was going to be in a band i played the saxophone i was about as near as it got i've got some quotes because they have a quotes section and there are some very good quotes from this which you might be interested to hear there's a lot of ozzy osborne too much ozzy osborne possibly but there is a great one where he just goes i'd like to go to acting school but m- with my accent i'd probably end up in crossroads um <laughs> There's a, there's a good one here. For, there's a good one here, actually. Now, this is Michael Jackson in probably about 1982. And he says, I always want to know what makes good performers fall to pieces. I just can't believe it's the same things that get them time and time again. And that's, that's an incredible quote. That's probably the last time I can imagine him saying something like that, can't you? It's like really a very perceptive thing. And, and you do wonder what happened. on a lot of levels. I know. He did but to even, literally start falling to pieces as well. I know, but to, but to even think of that, that suggests that he thought very, very hard about what he was doing, which I'm not sure he did later on. I had to chuckle at this one. When the day arrives when I can't write, when I'm drained, I'll just step down. I won't go on. There's nothing worse than the writer, the singer, who's outlived his usefulness, who's drained his diary, as it were. When I've drained the resources, I will step down. Much to the relief, I'm sure, of the British public. Any thoughts? I am going to suggest that that is a gentleman with three names, but he only uses one. <laughs> I think you might Stephen get Stephen Patrick Morrissey. <laughs> it is indeed TV Steve Morrissey. Um, should we send that to him as a nudging reminder that he is allowed to stop and go away? Here's Mike Peters from The Alarm. This made me laugh for some reason. I've met Bono many times and he's told me several jokes, none of which have been very funny. And this one, this is my favourite, I think. Everyone thinks I'm Mr. Nice Guy, but I'd love to play a Rambo-like character in a film. Who do you think that is? Well, obviously, from 1988, it's Shaking Stevens. Oh, and here's one. I, I think we can't we can't leave this without without having this last one, uh, simply because it completes a circle from the first time I was on. In ten years' time, I'll probably be mad, and that's Terence Trent Darby. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, dear. It's weird to look at it again, because obviously the early 80s, and particularly that thing of what was different about America from Britain, because the American charts in 1980, 81, are completely different from Britain. And within three or four years, they're almost the same. I mean, 1981, right, the REO Speedwagon album, High Infidelity, which is the one we keep on loving you on it. I know, no one even remembers that now. They remember Can't Fight This Feeling. It's the only one they remember. They don't remember Keep On Loving You. Nobody plays that. That was number one in the American album charts for six months. Honestly, and you cannot... When I got the right yearbook in 1981-82, which covered this year, and I kept looking at... Because they have the week by week. I was going, flicking over a page, flicking over another page, like scrolling down. and saying, It's still bloody there. It's still number one. <laughs> what, what else? Was, was nobody buying anything else? You know, were, were John Lennon's albums not going back to number one? It, none of this. It was it was bizarre. It's an album literally nobody talks about anymore. And probably nobody talked about it even in 1983. It's incredible. That is an album that's been complete... I mean, I could have come on and chosen that, but luckily I didn't. Well, just to confirm something that you mentioned earlier, and I don't think this would have been any challenge of Wario Speedwagon, Lloyd Grossman's <laughs> band was Jet Bronx and the Forbidden, who had a number 49 hit with Ain't Doing Nothing in 1977, That's apparently. That's it, because years later, when I think it was it was either Danny Baker After All or Danny Baker Show, that late night Saturday chat show he used to do, Lloyd Grossman was a guest, and at the end, he went and did that song with the Rail Town Bottle as Mark Kermode's group. Right, well, I must have seen that when he went up. I've no idea how the song goes, but I'm fairly sure it would have sounded nothing like your next choice, which you're going to hear a bit of now. Isaac Hayes there, but not singing any of his more familiar tracks, singing Joy. Justin, 
What's the story here? This, I would say, falls into the category of this record is often in my head. But yeah, this is the late Isaac Hayes, best known for Theme from Shaft, South Park, and writing Soul Man, and, you know, loads of 60 hits. This is a number called Joy, which came out in 1973, and initially it was the title track to an album of his, but then came out as a much, much shorter single. Inevitably had to, and it snips out a lot of the tension, but it does keep this extraordinary introduction. It's got one of my favourite introductions ever. It's like, you know, how long are those strings going to hang on? How how long, how long, how long, how long, how long? And relax. So there was a single edit, as I say, drastically cut down, but it's the album version I know first and best, really. And in fact, I was so young when I first heard it, I can't remember first hearing it, if that makes sense. All I knew was that the record was in our house, and we almost never got to the end of the track, because it's 16 minutes long on the LPs, and the main song itself was pretty much over by eight minutes in, so that's eight more minutes of, well, <laughs> background music, I suppose. And this has not got the greatest tune in the world, and it certainly hasn't got the greatest lyrics, because lyrics aren't, especially Isaac's forte. In fact, I can't help wondering if the lyrics are a bit of a send-up actually but what Isaac was absolutely brilliant at was arrangement and atmosphere and mood I now realize that arrangements are one of the most important things to me in music and I know they were to my dad as well his LP this actually was he had quite a bit of soul and jazz in his collection and there's something about the way it rises and falls and loops you know even before I had any idea of what it meant which became obvious later it was very effective and during this extended spell of background music towards the end the bit where Isaac starts to sing through of a coda then there's various reverbed sighs like like he's pushing a camper van up a hill. As far as I can tell, he starts impersonating a chicken at one point. And, um... <laughs> And then finally, well, how to put this, he does some high screams of, I imagine, ecstasy. So normally when it got to that point when I was a child, the stylus came off the record fairly sharpish after that. There was something about it I never quite understood. And of course, later you realise, duh, of course, that's why it's 16 minutes long. There's also, I mean, I didn't mention this earlier on in the song, there's a trumpet explosion. It sounds a bit like the noise our toilet made in the mid 70s when you flushed it. <laughs> so I heard this a lot as, a, as a, an actual kid. And then I was about 16, I rediscovered it. And that was when the penny dropped, really. I suddenly went, oh, yes, of course. But it's got a real kick to it. It's too long to simply listen to really because there's no definitive version but it's it's really got something and I, I heard it before I even really clocked that most songs are three or four minutes long and that's long enough so when I got into my teens I think that was the step into buying 12-inch singles really the longer the better really I just like the mood of a long record sometimes and, and I still do I think provided there's some urgency in the arrangement Well I think you've hit the nail on the head there something that I really really feel is important about music that annoys me when people miss it is that if you really love something even if it's great art you should be able to laugh at it as well there should be yes. things about it that make you yeah. raw laughing I mean my eyes are case thing is that I do love the fact that he was good enough to continue recording the look of love while he was falling down that well I love that record. <laughs> oh, but at, at the end he is, is very clearly disappearing down <laughs> a large brick tunnel yes he's, he's, he's walking away very slow well no it's either that or we're, we're the person who's walking away I do absolutely believe that though I mean one of the things I loved about when Chris Morris was a Radio 1 DJ was he would play records that he clearly loved mm. and still be sarcastic about. I mean, the, the one that always stayed with me was when he played Tracy Jacks by Blur and he got to, I'd love to stay here and be normal. And he said, yeah, and I'd like to stay here and sound exactly like the jam. <laughs> but that, I mean... that sort of thing is really important to me. I mean, anyone who's been listening to these will know I'm a huge Scott Walker fan yeah. and I don't go much beyond Tilt's his difficult mid-90s album because I found all the others kind of like reheated Tilt but not as 
good, but right. Tilt is an incredibly deep, depressing, macabre album, and there are things on it that just make me burst out laughing, like the bit where he appears to be singing in the shower on the cockfighter. Yeah. He says, those over there are like those over there, in different <laughs> speakers. <laughs> sometimes finding humour in it is imagining, well, what were they doing while they were recording it? And of course, sometimes... Mm. You like to think of the idea that the very intense records were probably an absolute riot. It was just about getting themselves in the mood to make that record at that moment. Well, that brings me back to Chris Morris again, because I know you've seen Oxide Ghosts, the Brass Eye Making of documentary. And it is fascinating that to compare with. I mean, you remember how a lot of his fan base received Brass Eye at the time. You know, it was this dark, important... It was almost as if they treated it as a humorless work of genius in some ways. That, you know, everything about it was serious. It was tackling the world. It, you know, it's the satire that's been made and so on. You see the behind-the-scenes footage, and they're mm. messing about half the time. Particularly, is it when they see the Jarvis Cocker link, when yeah. he, he gets it wrong, and then he imitates Paul Daniels, and he goes, I'll do you another one that you can cut in later. It's always been my favourite bit of brass eye anyway. But yeah. I don't think many people go into creating the Verticommas art with a long face, because you wouldn't be able to stand it for very long, surely. I think you could probably do it in short bursts, but I think the thing is, it's knowing where to put that, really. And also not, I mean, obviously not in everything, but I often find with novels that, I mean, I don't particularly want, you know, chuckling pun fests either. But there is something about a novel that doesn't have any humour in it. I'm not sure I entirely trust, because life isn't like that. Well, do you know what happened at the end of each session for Low by David Bowie? They had six sessions. At the end of each, they watched an episode of Faulty Towers, which oh, right, recorded right. off air because they were making this, you know, incredibly dark music using the Oblique Strategies cards as well, so they didn't know where it was going to go. Yeah. And then to wind down, they got all these American session musicians to watch Faulty Towers. Oh, that's excellent. I think that's a great... I mean, you know, well, I mean, you've got to switch off at some point, haven't yeah. you? You know, and I think also, also the other thing is, if you're working really hard at something... It's probably not the time when you down your tools and, you know, have a glass of something before bed. You think to yourself, well, now probably isn't the time to sort of open a volume of difficult modern verse, is it? You know, <laughs> you, you leave that to the morning, I think. As for Joy itself, I think it's interesting that you've got Isaac Hayes did this incredible amount of albums in yes. literally about three or four years. You know, yeah. things like Hot Buttered Soul was in there, yes. Black Moses and so on, and obviously the Shaft soundtrack. Yes. And then what's interesting is, I mean, obviously Joy was successful at at the time but you look at the wikipedia pages for all of them now it's got incredibly detailed ones and it comes to joy and it basically almost just says joy was released as an album yes <laughs> possibly because of the saturation of it, but it has been kind of, not left out of the canon, but people don't talk about it in the same breath as the other albums. I mean, it's not, because to be honest with you, I mean, one of the reasons that all those other albums, there was plenty of material, because, you know, most of them were reworkings of existing songs. There's not actually that many original songs on them, and so it was easy. I think, you know, there might be one original song or something, but most of it is, you know, covers. So he, for those who don't know, so he'll do, you know, I just don't know what to do with myself, or, well, The Look of Love We've Met, or by the time I get to Phoenix, which yeah. you know, famously is about nearly 20 minutes long, you could probably walk to Phoenix. By, uh, <laughs> I think, as I understand it, that Stax Records, that he was signed to at the time, there was a kind of contract where, you know, it was like, oh, you could make loads of records at the time. And because they needed albums, basically, that, that was what they needed. Albums were the, one, the things that made money, not singles. He ended up suing them. And I, I would need to check out the detail of this. But I think it wasn't that long after this period. So because he went to a different record company company after that and I think was it Thames records was it Thames records at the end yeah (laughs) (laughs) 
yeah, and his albums, I mean, he had a patchy album career. A very good Isaac Hayes album, actually, is one that he made in the mid-90s. It was just after they had all these people sampling the earlier records. So, you know, Portishead and Tricky and Massive Attack had all sampled things. And he brought out this record called Branded, which has got a fantastic version of, of all things Fragile by Sting, which is a fantastic record. The B-side of that single was a cover of Let's Go Out Tonight by the Blue Nile. And again, fantastic sort of version of it. You know, just absolutely brilliant. Okay, well, to introduce your next choice, we've got a piece of music that I don't know whether this was actually the theme for the UK version, but it's a lot more sinister than I remember. Let's just hear it and then we'll find out exactly what I was talking about there afterwards. from a 1973 children's animated series by Sveriges TV from Sweden. Justin, what did you know this better as? Well, it, this came out in Britain as a Watch With Mother programme. Although I don't think it was called Watch With Mother by then, isn't it? You're, you are the Watch With Mother expert, aren't you? It was it? still technically called was Watch it? With Mother at that point, yeah. Okay, so this was probably 1974. Five-ish. 75, yeah. 75. So I had started school, so I didn't see this very often, but and I don't think it was even on for very long. It was around the same time as they had Robovia, which I know you know a little bit about. It was an odd thing in that, you know when you sometimes you watch these things and you sense that you wondered where it had come from, and because you didn't really understand the nature of international co-production or exporting or importing or all that kind of thing with television formats, but there was sometimes something, it's a bit like when you watch an advert now and you can see somebody's lips aren't quite moving in time to what they're saying and you think oh that's an American advert where they've just dubbed a British voice on top of it this was like an animation where I remember thinking that there was something very melancholy about it actually I mean I don't know if that was the music or not that did that but actually children's programs in those days I mean I'd be interested to see an episode again I mean I did notice that there's a couple of episodes of the Swedish version on on YouTube was that much before it yeah that was 1973 so it's two years beforehand so right. I think there were probably, you know, 20 odd of them. And the BBC apparently seems to have bought seven. Right. And got Anne Morris, one of the Play School presenters. Yes. Because it was always Play School presenters, wasn't it? Yes. That yes. narrated these things. And because it was so short in the Watch mm. Mother slide, it was shown in a double bill with Ring-a-Ding, which is a Derek ah, Griffith series nobody lovely. remembers. Was it five minutes? That's all it was. My God. Yeah. Right, right. Oh, Ring-a-Ding, I remember very well. Usually they used to show that with Teddy Edward, didn't Teddy they? Teddy Edward, yes. Yeah. Which is another weird thing, because that wasn't really melancholy as such, but it was no. more cerebral than you'd think. And it had that really strange theme tune. Yes. It was like kind of like a funk jazz workout. Oh, Gadabout, is it called? Gadabout? Like Gadabout by John Scott. But at the end, it goes into this really shrill, what Jack Kipplewhite from TV Cream calls an angry flute, which he's yes. got a great anecdote about. He always thought that would herald, you know, the breakdown of society and the rise of the yippies or something. <laughs> Is that the same angry flute they have at the end of Issy Noho? Yes, it's exactly that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like an escaped focus record. <laughs> Even as a child, I found that quite... I mean, I liked the music, but I found it quite an odd fit. And there were things like Barnaby, which is obviously French, got very dark at some points. He was forever being locked in jails and crying really big tears. Yes. I don't know. I think what's odd about the children's programmes that I'm aware of now is that I think children have problems 
probably more developed emotional intelligence than we ever had. But I think television did do this stuff where you would get programs that would do what would be probably considered stuff you'd have to think quite carefully about doing. They'd probably get, you know, educational psychologists in to say, well, you could do that, but maybe not do that. Or, you know, so famously, obviously, you know, the death of Inigo Pipkin in Pipkins, you know, and, and having to replatform that show. But, you know, having to redo the format, having to deciding, yeah, we will go on. We will. We won't just show repeats. We will go on and we will explain what's happened, you know, or on Sesame Street where Mr. Hooper has died. And so they actually explain what's happened with the idea that you'd watch with your family and and talk about these things and yeah i think in some of these animations you know for very small kids there would be things that were quite not exactly upsetting but quite sort of there was a real sense of melancholy to the look of the characters the look of the sets the music probably also i'm sure this is what's colored it as well because there wasn't cbb's all day and cbbc until nine o'clock there was literally this amount of children's television and that was your lot and the 15 minutes at lunchtime once that was over and it would go to the test card for two hours or if you were lucky cricket or if you weren't if you didn't like cricket but you know there would be that sense that well that's it that's your lot and so maybe that's why we associate i know you have a long-running thing about the end of the cambwick green music but i think we all pick up on this sense of yeah it's nearly finished that's it no more television for a bit (laughs) do you know what i mean i think that's absolutely true because there wasn't even as far as i remember an announcer to back end it it was almost as if television was disappearing (laughs) on quite a melancholy note or you know a jarring strum at the end of cambwick green i think the difference in those days was when the BBC announcer would then say, because I think there was an announcement, but the thing is, what they would do is they never really made any differentiation between announcing an adult programme and announcing a children's no. programme. It would be the same announcer who'd go, now the six o'clock news with Peter Woods or whatever. And then they'd go, well, uh, uh, now it's time to join Barnaby for another adventure. You know, it would be like that. And then they, afterwards they'd go, well, BBC One's closing down now, but here is the uh, test card and some music. And then two hours would go by. There'd be that sense of formality about it. Television, I, I mean, it would stagger people, I think, under the age of about 30 to watch television continuity from the 70s you don't have to do this by the way this is just things that older people do but if you go back if you were to go back and look at television from the 70s and people announcing programs it is staggering how formal everything is it really is quite it's kind of it feels very um not i mean i was gonna say authoritarian and that's a bit strong but it feels very much good evening this is television you know it's like that it's very sort of it, it actually hadn't moved that much since the 50s really it's just yeah, the, the no absence of God's to, no not the really BBC announcements it, it, like yeah. I say it's very formal I mean ITV yeah. you did have envision people quite yeah, a lot of the yeah, day they, you which did. you know sometimes they would crack a smile which would <laughs> Yeah, yeah. They'd only, on BBC, they'd only really let the mask slip the very end of BBC Two when the announcer would say, and uh, you might like to know that uh, Radio Two is still on air, and at the moment it's Ray Moore who'll be taking you through the night. And they'd do that, and uh, now this is, this is me, you know, um, you know, Algernon Lunch Biscuits saying goodnight from BBC Two and uh, sleep well. And you do that. So that would be the nearest you got in the whole day to a sense that there was an announcer there who sort of was on your side. The rest of the time it was all a bit like it was an assembly or something. And Thomas is interesting as well, because there is that kind of weird black hole regarding that time slot in the 70s where very few things. I think probably most people remember finger bobs. Obviously, mm. Bagpuss is very well known. But a lot of the other things 
Lions were on in the 70s. Barely remembered, even a couple of years after they'd been on. I remember that being the first time I was kind of aware of sort of the idea of things being culturally in the past was when nobody remembered Barnaby and Ragtime. Right, right. A couple of years after they were on. All the stuff from the 50s and 60s is really well remembered. Stuff from the 80s like Chock-A-Block and Graham are very well remembered. The 70s stuff, it seems we've almost just come and gone. And I can't quite figure that out because, you know, things like How Do You Do, that was shown about nine or ten times. A lot of them have just almost disappeared from the cultural memory. Do you know what I think it is, though, actually? Although you can you can find exceptions to the rule on both sides of this. But I have a feeling that most of the things that are warmly remembered tend to be the things that use puppets or the things that use animation. And the things that have human beings presenting as the focus tend to be less well remembered, I would suggest. Yeah, but for, yeah. young, for young children. And even when you think of Sesame Street, the first things you think of are not brilliant performances though a lot of them are you don't think of the humans in it you think of the Muppets or you think of Big Bird or Oscar or whoever you don't think of Gordon or you don't think of Maria or you know and they're brilliant but you don't that's not the first thought you have okay well your next choice as far as I can tell isn't as melancholy sounding but I have a feeling that it might have slightly melancholy connotations for you by, I think I'm saying this right, Impelitary. Justin, I know nothing about this. What is it? Well, I shouldn't know anything about it either. (laughs) I think it's Impelitary, I think. So I worked in a record shop between the summer of 1988 and Christmas 1991. It was a tiny, tiny shop. It mainly dealt in rock and heavy metal. When I was working there, so I was 18 and I started working there, and you just, you know, most of what we were playing was heavy rock. And every now and again, it comes back to me. I think of a name like Voivod or Queensryche or Kingdom Come, Striper, the devout Christian heavy metal band, um, the death metal group Dayside. I'd love to have seen the pair of them on a bill, wouldn't you? Carcass, who used to title their albums things like Reek of Future of Action, sleeves of which were these incredibly garish collages of internal organs. Tiger Tales, the uh, Welsh group and maker of 1989's You're Not a Lady, You're a Love Bomb Baby. We've all seen that episode of Raw Power, probably. Magnum, whose lead singer did a signing in our shop. Yeah, look impressed. And so I worked in this shop don't look for it. it's not there anymore in the market it's a pet shop now but it was like this it was about the size of a spacious living room and when the boxes would come in of deliveries well, half of which would be a mixture of that stuff the heavy metal stuff and then chart singles by kylie and rick astley and people because we were known as we were part of what was known as a chart return shop so we our shop was part of the sample of stores surveyed in order to compile the charts for radio one on top of the pops and so every record bought in our shop counted towards that chart and that's quite important because a lot of record shops on the survey were places like Woolworths and uh, Boots which in those days still did a lot of records and John Mendes and things like that and Smiths and then there were a few shops like HMV and Virgin and Our Price and then there was the Chamber with No Name and the 
shop I worked for was part of the chain with no name. So in Pilateri was the album that on my very first Saturday working there, which was the same week I left school, we had this album on all day, which was called Stand in Line by Impilateri. There's a curious thing about heavy metal albums I don't think you get in any other genre. The star of the group was often the guitarist. It wasn't the singer. And so bands would be named after the guitarist. And in this case, Chris Impilateri. The singer in Impilateri, incidentally, was Graham Bonner, who was in the band Rainbow around the time they did Since You've Been Gone. And Since You've Been Gone does actually turn up on this LP in a not-as-good version. Yeah, it's say. dreadful. It sounds like somebody's banging two copies of the originals together in a skip. It's very bad. The thing with a lot of heavy metal, a lot of heavy rock, is you realise how important the production is. You still need the thing to sound like you can hear the guitars properly and you can hear the singer properly is actually a better production and those rainbow you could you can hear on the rainbow record whatever you think of it you can hear immediately oh that's a huge hit record you can immediately hear that on the radio but then also a couple of tracks after the since you've been gone debacle we get their instrumental version of somewhere over the rainbow i've not dared listen to that have you not it can best be described as like hearing tommy vance's pages from cfax i mean it is it's absolutely extraordinary because it just starts out with the tune and then obviously because it's a guitarist who wants to show you that he can play the guitar for four or five minutes and so then just goes widdly widdly for four or five minutes there's a lot of this that happened in heavy rock and i must admit and i part company with probably quite a lot of music fans here where you know i'm a very big fan of you know ideas and uh, concepts and you know having a good idea for a record you don't have to be able to play the instruments really if you don't you don't have to it doesn't matter but actually there is a part of me that secretly absolutely loves it when people can do that as well i think there's it's a real you know and i I like a lot of classical music and obviously there's obvious comparisons between heavy rock and classical there's a lot of very similar and actually you can hear in a lot of heavy metal you can hear guitarists who clearly learnt Bach as children because it's the same kind of chord progressions it's the same kind of the reason I bring this up by the way is I actually think that you know when people talk about music in the 80s and 90s you don't often get heavy rock discussed in the mix really you get you know Acid House and the rave scene and there's New Jack Swing and the Stock Aitken and Walkman and then eventually you get sort of first rumblings of grunge but actually that period you, you know there's Metallica and Iron Maiden and Poison and Anthrax and they're all having like proper hit singles like really big hit singles particularly Iron Maiden and you know top 10 albums and I speak as somebody who you know I have no particularly great love for most of this stuff as such but I realised that I've forgotten that it did actually have quite an importance in my working life because I sort of came to oddly respect what was being played I mean the lyrical content to be fair you know it's just more barefaced than a lot of pop music so the themes the main themes are war the bible hellfire death belting down the highway what you intend to do with your penis and slow soppy ballad on track four if you're American and that's that's it really that's all right you know and I a lot of the heavy metal fans who actually came in they were you know shot horror actually really really nice people funny and polite and you know and they bring up these sleeves to the counter because we kept all the inner sleeve behind the counter as a lot of record shops did they bring up these sleeves full of ugly scary imagery a lot of the idea of it the extremity of it often made me laugh especially if you heard really bad examples of heavy metal there. if you hear bad indie it's just bad but bad heavy metal is entertaining and i must admit i did i get asked when you know sometimes when i say oh, i did this job and some people say did you actually like any of the music and you think well actually i genuinely thought the metallica records were really impressive even if it wasn't quite my thing i mean one it's not a record i'd want to hear very often but it is an extraordinary idea for a song and it was a proper hit single it got in the top 20 you know it's like that's a massive hit living color you know i like them very much but they were like 
a rock band who dipped a toe in every genre as well as metal you know they didn't just do metal obviously i like dc dc but you know that's a bit of a cheat because they're a bit like motorhead in that they're the list of heavy rock bands it's okay to like but i also just have had a hankering today just to play unskinny bot by poison just to remind me of laughing and being on a terrible hourly rate of pay the other thing i've just thought of we used to play certain records and we wanted to clear the shop at the end of the day and one of the things we used to play was torture garden which was a record made by uh, john zorn's naked city which was basically the best jazz musicians in the world playing thrash metal um (laughs) which was extraordinarily uh i think it was on earache records which was the same label napalm death were on it was an extraordinary time you know i don't i wouldn't be able to do it now not just because the shop doesn't exist anymore but also because I don't know enough anymore and I didn't I'm not sure I knew quite enough then but you could sort of sort of bullshit your way through it really because when people came in you could kind of I, I just think I was quite good with customers and also we used to get people in who were not rock fans who you know wanted to buy something in the charts I do remember a woman once who said to me have you got any Cliff Richard 12 inch singles it's always Cliff Richard isn't it and I said I don't think we have we did like a second hand section as well I'll just go and have a look and I said I don't think we've got any and she said why not which is in fairness not, not a question <laughs> question i could answer it was a strange time but i learned a lot doing that job well i agree with you that you know i'm not the world's biggest fan shall we say of 80s metal in particular although i do think it gets an unfair rap i think that even at the time the parodies of it were wrong because you know a lot of it either came out of glam rock or over here came out of the new wave of british heavy metal which like it or loathe it was kind of an equivalent to punk kind of a similar attitude absolutely Like, like you say a lot of the songs were about war but you know at least they weren't just empty-headed cliches yeah but yeah this stuff was massive it was absolutely massive one of the things that really really i mean we've moved on now to we're pretty close to 1990 on the top of the pops repeats on bbc4 yeah. although yeah. who was that idiot columnist the other day saying all bbc4 shows and repeats of top of the pop well yeah what's wrong with that but when it was in the mid to late 80s and there were people complaining basically saying oh there's a heavy metal song on it's not the classic pop classic that I want like that's what I love about the top of the pops repeats that you get all this weird stuff that you wouldn't think now from the way it's depicted was in the charts and there's loads of hair metal and glam metal all over the place but I think the thing is to look at it from the perspective of people who were making programs and realize that they wanted as many people as possible to watch so that kind of puts forward this idea that top of the pops and actually if you want a really good top 40 chart the more genres you've got in it the better and I I think that in the 80s particularly there just seemed to be this thing was there really was something for everyone and the average edition of top of the pops there should be they looked at it as being it's something that the whole family would watch so there'd be something your mum might like whatever that might be there'd be something for your dad there'd be something that your sister or your brother would like and then there'd be something that you might like and then there'd be heavy metal or something so they'd have a, a video of a heavy metal group because that would keep somebody happy and yeah it might have your parents going what is this rubbish or particularly with you know when acid house happened although it does notably become a younger person's program at that point that program and you know there are all sorts of issues with top of the pops that we could go into but probably won't the thing with it was it did have a difficult job as radio one had a difficult job in that it had to cater for everybody at some point during the day or during the edition that was on you had to have something and you know in a show where you had to put it together in 48 hours as 
well and it was in the charts that actually immediately and who's available it immediately narrows down what you can put on so in a way they did quite a good job really but yeah heavy metal is kind of it's seen as an annex from most pop music and i don't know whether that's just because people who like heavy metal wouldn't be able to tolerate other types of music or i think it, it actually might be the other way around i think that those of us who like pop music might be a bit sniffy about heavy metal and having that in a and maybe it should stay in its own ghetto the trouble is with heavy metal it's very difficult to put something next to it it's very you know if you're putting together a program heavy metal has a very particular sound or heavy rock and also i haven't mentioned this but another thing we used to do in the shop and play quite a lot was links back to impelitarios we used to sell a lot of albums by sort of guitarists like you know joe satriani i mean surfing with the alien honest to god i don't know how many copies we sold of surfing with the alien in the three years i worked there it felt like we sold as many of that as guns and roses it honestly felt like we sold thousands of copies of that and stevie ray vaughan who you know he's the guitarist on let's dance by david bow for those who don't know but he you know came to make his own albums as well so yeah we sold loads of stevie ray vaughan albums and you know and all those sorts of people and god help us ingui malmsteen i look back at it with fondness because you just think it was always learning about something i didn't know about we didn't know very much about and it makes you just more i think in the end it sort of makes you more tolerant of other types of music especially other types of music you might not understand or entirely get but if you hear enough of it, you start to notice, you know, there are certain things you just thought, yeah, I can see why people might like that. I don't necessarily, but you can sort of hear things that you can think, yeah, I can imagine. And actually going back to that thing I said about sleeve art earlier on, I actually think one of the reasons I didn't really embrace things like heavy metal was I probably didn't like the sleeves very much. What I was saying about the sort of album sleeves that I liked, they weren't really the heavy metal album sleeves. I mean, obviously some of the groups, I mean, in a sense, the Iron Maiden album covers are absolutely brilliant because you immediately know who the group is. You could take the name of the group off the front cover and you would still know that was an Iron Maiden album, which is genius, really. You know, you immediately spot Eddie and you just go, yeah, it's Iron Maiden. So I can sort of see that, but it never, I mean, we have a friend, John Williams, World of Telly on Twitter, who said once that everyone goes through a little heavy metal phase in their teens. And I didn't quite do that, but I sort of know what he meant. There's a kind of thing that a lot of people go through where you have this sort of one or two years and there's part of me that almost wishes that my first gig had been Iron Maiden because you'd never forget that as a first gig would you well I'm wondering if you'll be quite as tolerant of your next choice and whether you'll be able to see why people liked it well come on to what it is after the theme music Selwyn's widening his scope never mind has left his home with hope, never mind. To his folks he's been a Jew, and a new life he'll pursue, as he goes to pastures new. Never mind, oh never mind. Okay, right, well when Monty Python's Flying Circus came to see before they shortened the title to Monty Python and it went off in a lot of different directions some worked some didn't but it was always interesting when oh no it's Selwyn Frog it came to series four it became Selwyn Justin I'm guessing the results weren't quite as intriguing as that no I mean I, this, <laughs> this goes into the category marked crushing childhood disappointment so Selwyn which was went out on ITV in 1978 and starred Bill Maynard younger viewers or indeed much older viewers may also remember he was Greengrass in Heartbeat but Selwyn as you said it was a follow-up to oh no it's selwyn frogget it is no frazier 
in terms of <laughs> revamping the character and putting him in a new situation. Now, cards on the table, absolutely right away. I loved Oh No, It's So and Froggy. And when I was preparing to come on this, I revisited the whole of it, including the fourth series. And I revisited it beginning with some trepidation, it must be said. And the pilot, by the way, is awful. It's one of the worst things I've ever seen, unfortunately. But I was pleasantly surprised to find that much of it, especially the first series proper, was still pretty funny. So, you know, when you watch something from the 70s, there are two sorts of laughs. There's the ho-ho, it's the 70s laugh, where the laugh comes from the fact they've done something that is just creakingly out of date and would never, ever be transmittable now and probably shouldn't have been then. And then there's the, wow, this is still funny now laugh, which is always a relief. For me, series of one of Froggit is mostly in that second category. For those who might not know, there's a good reason for that, and that's that it's written by Alan Plato, one of the great British screenwriters and, uh, you know, wrote loads of single plays, Land of Green Ginger probably most prominently, and then there were series like The Biderbeck Affair, and, and he even did the adaptation of Fortunes of War with Emma Thompson, which won loads of awards when that came out. He wrote that. You know, up against that, you kind of think the Froggit connection that Plato has is a bit, it's a bit like discovering that Dennis Potter wrote the first couple of series of Duty Free, you know. So just to fill in, oh no, it's on Froggit, people who haven't seen it, he's an ebullient, which I suppose means annoying, but well-intentioned <laughs> handyman in his, I suppose, 40s or early 50s, who yearns for betterment and escape from his hometown of Scarsdale in Yorkshire, which I don't know if that's a real town or not, or is it fictional? I'm not sure. I don't know Yorkshire well enough to know that. But I guess that his aspirations was a real kick for kids, because he is a bit like me, and, and maybe this is what I got out of it, because he is a big kid. He's misunderstood, but he's bursting with ideas, probably too many. I mean, there's one episode which I really liked, which consisted of, until the last couple of minutes, it, it's just a brilliant episode, and it consists of Selwyn becoming the entertainment officer at the local working men's club, and he has the bright idea of scrapping all the strippers that they have on, which this was 1976, so this is quite, was considered quite a radical decision, and booking something a bit more cultural, like the Halle Orchestra, Yehudi Menuhin, Sammy Davis Jr. This episode, by the way, fantastically, is called There Are Several Businesses Like Show Business. <laughs> Which it's quite a literate, the variety of that is quite a literate sitcom, certainly at the beginning. And, you know, as well as the more well-remembered catchphrase, Magic R. Morris, it's got one of the great lost catchphrases of sitcom. When Selwyn Froggett enthuses about a new obsession, he uses the words, there's a great article about it in The Times. He was a Times reader because he wanted to learn more about the world. So it, so when that gag is used properly, and it wasn't later on, in the early series, it really was. Well, I've seen this great article about it, and I, so I want to do something about it. So it's got loads of really good dialogue, not too many stunts. You could probably run most of it on ITV3 now. There's maybe one line I would snip out of it now. One line in the whole of the series, but everything else is okay, I think. And when the stunts start to take over, it slips a bit, but by then Plate is less involved, and he did actually mutter it much later on that Bill Maynard was notoriously unwilling to learn his lines, so I don't know how much that affected his relationship with the show. And I think it's a fair correlation that the more that Plater is involved, the better it is. So he wrote all of Series 1, about half of Series 2, a little bit of series three and then no episodes of the fourth series. Can you see where this is going? <laughs> Slightly. Al Alan Plater <laughs> is not involved in the fourth series of Selwyn Froggit. So imagine the scene. It's a Tuesday. It's September of 1978. New series about to start. And honest to God, if you were me, it was like faulty towers coming back. It was like I was just 
so excited. And there were just a few little tiny alarm bells going off in my head in the run up to the programme. So Tiny Bell number one, it had a new title, which is even then I knew there's a bad sign. Why isn't it called Oh No, It's Someone Frog It anymore? Why? Why isn't it called that? Because it's a ridiculous title, but it's kind of, you remember that? Why is it called Selwyn? Tiny Bell number two, we got the TV Times. I had a look at the billing and, oh, the supporting cast have all gone. And they've been replaced by some other people. I don't know who they are. I don't know who these actors are at all. Where's Richard Davis, the Welsh bloke? Where's Linda Barron? They've gone. Tiny Bell number three. As I say, Alan Plater, not involved. And I knew next to nothing about Alan Plater, but I knew enough to know even then that I'd enjoyed his episodes. And I later discovered from an interview that cast member Linda Barron gave that apparently after the third series, the entire supporting cast were told that their services would not be required for the next series. And that's as much as I know about that. I do not know who made that decision. I don't know what was going on. So I sat down to watch the first episode of Selwyn, very expectantly. And within two minutes... I knew I would never watch it again. But, you know, you have to give it a whole episode. Even then, I thought, no, no, you know, might get better, might get better. Obviously, I've watched it all now and it gets worse after episode one, actually. The premise of Selwyn. So he lives with his mum and his brother. And when his brother gets married, he is evicted from the bedroom that he shared with his brother and is then told that he has to. So he's sleeping on a hammock on the landing and he's told that he has to move out of the family home and sleeping in a hammock contravenes safety rules. So it's already quite bleak, right? Yeah. It's really quite bleak. He gets a job as the entertainment officer at a holiday camp, which is called Paradise Valley. And it's essentially a disused army barracks, which is obviously being like there's some conflict going on, but it's not well written enough to kind of really explain what's properly going on. And it's just a horrible, horrible place full of like really angry people who, instead of being funny, just shout all the time. It's a sort of sitcom where you try and guess each joke and you're usually right. I mean, it actually, at one point, there's an episode where they're about to all get on a bus. He takes the camps on a bus and it does actually contain this joke. Return, please. Where to? Back here, of course. You know, if the joke from the Chip Club joke book, editor G. Brandreth, would turn up on television, you'd think, that's cheating. Write your own jokes. <laughs> Stop copying out of joke books and lolly sticks. We know all this. You owe it to yourself to not just copy stuff out of joke books. It's the sort of sitcom where this becomes a catchphrase. Bear in mind, I've just said that catchphrase in series one is there's a great article about it in The Times. In series four, a catchphrase is whenever he leaves a room and shuts the door, the shelves fall off the wall. That's not a catchphrase. It's not a catchphrase. Well, it is. In, to, to the makers of Selwyn, it is. It, and this just doesn't, this doesn't happen once. This doesn't happen twice. This happens many times my thoughts are with the overworked set designer that's all i can say because i mean he must have just gone mad doing it it is a sitcom where the acting is just execrable i mean it, it is so bad the sporting players who I, I suspect are not very well directed it's like they go from good morning politely to what are you doing frog it at the top of their voice in two seconds usually in a bad welsh accent it's not richard davis this time believe me and i must mention this is very on brand for me this and i did plan to choose Selwyn even before i watched episode three which i'd never seen i think it might be episode four there's an episode in which believe it or not the holiday camp has not had its bins collected <laughs> and so as a consequence selwyn has the bright idea of getting the campers to have a shopping trolley race in order to get rid of all the bins that is most of episode four's plot and i should mention that probably the only supporting player of note in the whole series is and he turns up at the end of this very briefly is bill waddington who regular listeners to this podcast will have already heard uh, <laughs> don't forget the old folks this christmas as we know but as i was watching it you know when you start watching something that's terrible 
world. There's something very fascinating sometimes about the making of things that don't work. You know, I think my take on someone is something in the making of it went really badly wrong because I don't think they intended to make it look like this. You know, TV Hell, which was that theme night mm-hmm. that was on. There's a TV executive and he's talking about Club X at the time. It was Stephen Garrett, who was the commissioning editor for Channel 4. But he's since founded Kudos, who make, you know, Life on Mars and things like that. But he said in this documentary, this is nearly 30 years ago, it's always stayed with me, that nobody sets out to make a bad television programme. I think I would agree with that, broadly speaking. I would be fascinated by a DVD commentary of Selwyn in which, you know, the reality of the making of Selwyn was laid bare because I have so many questions I would like answered. Whose decision, as I say, was it to get rid of that supporting cast? Was there a writer's room? Because it was written by different people. And if so, has it been condemned by the council? Why was everyone just furious all the time? Where was Saddlethorpe, which it was meant to be? Where is that? It's not even on the coast. So many questions. And we'll never know. We'll never know. And I hadn't thought about it until quite recently when I thought, what should I choose of something that nobody remembers? (laughs) What about Selwyn? Which, uh, are you tempted? I'm really, really not. Although I did notice (laughs) brilliantly the last episode of Selwyn is called A Man for One Season. That's quite a good title. That is quite a good title. It's kind of nominative determinism as well. It wasn't going to come back. No. And actually... (laughs) See, it was for one season. To absolutely nail the fact that it wasn't coming back, the end of that episode consists of a montage of all the stunts from all the four series, normally of tents falling down, things like that. And the thing is, the stunts were not really supposed to be the heart of the show. That kind of wasn't really what it was about. It wasn't supposed to be ITV, some others do happen. That kind of wasn't the point of it. But I think when I saw that montage, I I mean, I never saw it in 1978, I'd given up. But, I mean, the first joke in Selwyn, it's at the coach station in presumably Leeds, I think. He leans his bike up against a wall, goes to get some chocolate out of the chocolate machine, and the bike falls over. And that is the first joke in Selwyn. (laughs) And you think, yeah... That, that's that's not enough, is it? It's not. That is not enough. That's that. Buster Keaton has never done a film is where it he just leans things up... falling over throughout the whole. Program? I mean, you would not believe how many things just fall off things, or <laughs> it, it does. He literally, you know, this thing that Alan Plater said about he was unable or unwilling to learn his lines. That really comes over in Selwyn because I mean, I don't imagine what the scripts were like. I mean, the writers are people who are not on IMDb. That's how obscure it is. They probably never did anything again and who can blame them but the thing is it's got things in it where out of nowhere he just does a joke and you think what what's what's that and i read somewhere that in the 50s before he became i mean you know you know who bill maynard was in a double act with he was in a double act with terry scott and they did a television series to the bbc called great scott it's maynard but anyway he worked in a holiday camp he did entertainment at a holiday camp so there's the horrible feeling that selwyn is like an autobiographical work in a sense and this is before heidi high by the way this is before heidi high became a very big success deservedly you know and but yeah it's it's appalling i mean so in frog it i would say to people listening to this if you've never seen it first use of frog it is fine yeah Selwyn it's uh you know I mean I think if you watch the first 45 seconds which when I was eight was about as far as I got before I looked at my watch and went "Mm, only about 25 minutes to go then really remember doing that but if you watch just the opening titles you will get a sense of the absolute limitation of what they had I put real work into this tonight Well, so oh, much dear. that I can't think of a single decent way of getting into your last choice. No, so no. here's a radio jingle, and I'll explain why it's there in a second. Five, nine, four. 
Okay, that was three numbers and two words that were burnt into my mind throughout my childhood. 194 Radio City. And the reason I mentioned that is Radio City was my local commercial radio station, which had a lot of the kind of adverts that I think you want to discuss a bit. Yes, I'd like to bring up the subject here of local and parochial radio commercials. Now, a bit of background. In the 70s and 80s, before Radio 1 got its own FM frequency, the only way you would really hear pop music in reasonable sound quality during the day, in stereo anyway, was to tune into your local independent radio station if you were lucky enough to have one which a lot of areas didn't and I grew up in Swansea and indeed live there back there now and Swansea Sound was launched in 1974 so it was the first commercial radio in Wales before Cardiff and in fact I think it was only the fifth in the whole of Britain so we got this option quite early and so I heard a lot of Swansea Sound when I was growing up and even did some stuff for them in my late teens I worked on a sort of live current affairs youth program on Sundays and some of the output was and still is in the Welsh language because the catchment area of Swansea Sound isn't just Swansea it's West Wales as well so it was I'm not sure if it's the only, but it's certainly the first bilingual radio service that commercial radio did. So it always had quite a sizable share of the listenership. And it used to carry a lot of commercials that were clearly made in London. But there were others that were local because obviously one of the big draws about commercial radio, especially in those days, and I think this is kind of forgotten a bit now, is that it was for the community. So you took for granted that jingle singers on adverts, when you when you heard adverts on TV, there were all sorts of slogans. If you looked at them written down, it would look laughable. For some reason, you didn't quite realise the ridiculousness of it until Jingle Singers got to do local adverts and I would like to put forward as my exhibit A here the jingle for a shop called Glamorgan Tiles I have looked online I could not find this and I've actually listened to entire Swansea Sound shows that were uploaded to Mixcloud just to see if I could find it and it wasn't there unfortunately this jingle I mean Glamorgan Tiles still exists as a shop so nothing about what I'm going to say is a criticism of the shop I should point out for any lawyers listening it's merely the jingle which I don't think is on anymore so it used to go something along the lines of this it used to go tiles, 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 tiles. <laughs> There's no point in walking mile after mile when you've got them all in Glamorgan tiles. Yeah, it rhymes <laughs> mile with tiles. And the idea that most people would visit loads of tile shops stretching over many miles rather than just go to one tile shop for their tiles needs. I, I didn't really understand why this was, you know, but it was a very memorable jingle. I mean, you can't, you have to take your hat off to them. I still remember that. And it must, it can't have been on for at least 30 years, that jingle. And I think, I think anyone listening to this from the Swansea area, I, I suspect a lot of them will, will remember that. I mean, there were other ones. I mean, there was a there was a furniture shop. Yeah, now you might think that Arthur Llewellyn Jenkins is just the name of one of the Pac-Man ghosts, but it isn't. <laughs> it isn't at all. It's it's actually originally a furniture store. I'm sure the Pac-Man ghost came first, but they obviously thought let's call it after the Pac-Man ghost with its slogan "Where quality counts." There's also the Aberavon Shopping Centre near Port Talbot, which had a long-running campaign. Now, I love the banality of having proper singers vocalise the phrase. Aberavon Shopping Centre with its catchy tagline why don't you try it you can buy everything which just put me in mind of that old Stephen Wright joke which went you can't have everything where would you put it well you've got things to say about it. presumably your your Radio City adverts were in that vein were they or did you did you have furniture shops which were named after Pac-Man ghosts well there's more local businesses but and yeah. they tended to I mean they had incredible jingles like Stormont Car and Van Hire 7033201 near Lineker Lane Bootle they always be a combination of Excellent. a snappy jingle and a man who sounded like he didn't want to be there probably somebody from the office and then there were things like curry motors nice people to do business with and <laughs> deacon gold rain green who were a local solicitors firm where i'm sure it was somebody from the office would go deacon gold rain green 
all the support you need. For, you know, it's, it's mm. incredibly. They were dull. They were boring. <laughs> but they somehow got lodged in your brain. I mean, the yeah. one that really, I every time I go past St. John's Shopping Centre, I do think of St. John's Shopping Centre is waiting for you. So come on down and spend an hour or two with St. John's. <laughs> I was not specific this of an hour or two. No other time periods oh, never well, permitted. Oh. But later on, an hour get or ones, two. Later on, though, you start to get ones where they were just slightly copyright averting things that were big at that point. Like, I remember yeah. one, I can't remember what it was for, but Mum repeatedly saying in a sort of faux Bart Simpson voice, it was around the time we do the Bart Man, eat your shirt. <laughs> There was one, uh, literally around the same time as this, a kind of Ice Ice Baby riffing one, except the note at the end of the main motif went up instead of down. Like, duh, 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 with somebody rapping over the top. All kinds of things like that. It was just, I couldn't understand how anyone could do one of these adverts and, like, clap their hands at the end of the day and say, a satisfying day's work well done, I think. Because, no. Well, we've all got to put food on the table, I suppose. But I think I think the thing is with um, I mean, I, going back to the thing you were saying then, I, I always think you can't be, and I haven't got an example of Sam, but I'm sure people who might remember some uh, equivalent of it, which is that if you've got an advertising jingle where the phone number is in the song, it's kind of it's amazing because <laughs> it's like someone's thought, you know, could you put the phone number in the song? Because then people will remember it and then they'll ring us up and, and then we'll get business. You know, it's like it's like they've obviously thought through the idea that if you can put it in a song and most phone numbers don't work in songs, you've got to have a really good phone number. You've got to have you know double double six or something like that. It's, you know, three, one, two, five, one, one doesn't work as a as a thing, does it? You, you've got to have like five, double one. It's like that, that you know, move, move the lyric along, you know. And, but I love the idea that musicologists would have these meetings. And you can imagine this still happens in with, with advertisers who don't want to pay for existing songs and think, look, can we do something that just sounds a bit, it's like, there's, there's one, this isn't radio, but do you remember um, the uh, Fridge Freeze Electric advert in the 80s, which obviously were not allowed to use Sweet Dreams Are Made of This by the Eurythmics. And so decided to do something that was really close to it. There was he got a singer who was like, could you, could you do Annie Lennox for us? And then they've got like a synth player in the background. It was really similar to that. And there were so many examples of that over time of songs that kind of just that you could sort of hear it going, yeah, yeah, I know what you, t- I, I know what you weren't allowed to use. <laughs> it's like you know, <laughs> like that kind of thing. I do miss it. I, you know, when when I hear local radio now, they don't, they don't really do it so much now because I suppose that kind of advertising has gone elsewhere. Really, they don't really do it for. Um, well, I don't know. Maybe they do. Swansea Sound still exists. I should probably give it a listen at some point. They're, they're, that's some, um, that's uh, that's gratitude and loyalty, isn't it? It's like I live there <laughs> and I don't even listen to the local radio station. <laughs> Slap on the wrist for me there. But yeah, so there, there it is. I, 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 I do. Um, though I. Actually, you've just reminded me that we did used to get some national adverts when I used to work at the station in the late 80s. And we'd have to play them in in the middle of the programme I was working on. It was Sunday afternoon and you'd get you get adverts for, there used to be an advert for Sunday Sport, which used to go on the, the independent radio network. And this was in the time when Sunday Sport was sort of, yes, it was kind of like basically page three. But also it was, but then they'd also have, you know, World War Two bomber found on moon. And then the following week, it's gone, which is, which I do think, despite everything, is 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 a 
stroke of genius putting that on the cover like as if to say to readers yeah 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 you get this right you you understand what we're doing but there used to be an advert there used to be an advert for uh sunday sport there's an advert i can't remember what it was for so that shows you advertising doesn't work which started with a blast of toy boy by sunita and a voice saying hi i'm lizzie webb and uh it, it would be i think it was some fitness guide or something like that but it was revolving around the fact that they had, for some reason, a toy boy and had Lizzie Webb going, hi, I'm Lizzie Webb. Can't remember any more than that. It's annoying, isn't it? You can't remember things. Do you remember? <laughs> Do you remember not remembering things? <laughs> That's kind of the whole point of looks unfamiliar. <laughs> yes, yes. Not being able, I, except in my case, not being able to remember the thing that I'm on to discuss. But yes, anyway, yes. <laughs> Whoa, what fun it's been. Yes, yeah, I think you've taken us through the looking class there, Justin. <laughs> <laughs> it's been that for the looking glass somebody, somebody some heavy metal band made an album called Through the Looking Glass I'm sure of it <laughs> well I don't want to see the cover of it Justin no. it's been brilliant thank you thank you very much Tim Tim Worthington, the story of comedy at BBC Radio 1, from Kenny Everett to Chris Morris and beyond. More details, timworthington.org.